In John 11.35, we find the shortest verse in the Bible. We find, as David Nagel put it, a mere noun and a past tense verb. John 11.35, Jesus wept. But the trivial fact of this verse's length and its grammatical construction hardly scratched the surface of this many-layered statement as well as its significance. The context is found here in John chapter 11. The chapter opens by telling us that Lazarus was sick, a man from the town of Bethany, where his sisters Mary and Martha lived. Mary, we are told, is the woman who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. The two sisters, Martha and Mary, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus got this message, he said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. John then tells us, the readers, in verse number 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And I think John tells us this perhaps to help us understand better the next statement in chapter 6. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. I just point out that two times here at the beginning of the story, we are told that Jesus loved Lazarus. And the message that Martha and Mary sent to him, the one you love is sick. And then here in, in verse number five, the statement from John, the direct statement that Jesus loved Lazarus. After the two days of receiving the message, Jesus tells his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But they think this may not, in fact, be a good idea. It wasn't that long ago he was in Judea, and the Jews there tried to stone him to death. And Jesus answers rather cryptically, are there not twelve hours of daylight? <clears throat> a man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. Again, a rather cryptic statement. And then he continues in this mysterious vein by telling them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And the disciples take this to mean that Lazarus is actually recovering because now he's able to get restful sleep, uh, recuperative sleep. He is recovering from his illness. But John tells us in verse number 13, Jesus had been speaking of his death, that is, Lazarus had died. When Jesus and the disciples get to Bethany, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. It was the custom of the Jews, it still is among many of them, that they bury a person within 24 hours of their death. But the period of mourning uh, continues long after the funeral and the burial. So Jesus arrives, even though it's been four days, he arrives on the scene of mourning. We are told that many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother, to sympathize with them in the loss of their brother. Martha goes out to meet Jesus. Mary stays home. And when she meets Jesus, she tells him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus responds in verse number 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha answers, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That is at the end of time. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, 
who was to come into the world. Martha goes home to get Mary, telling her, the teacher is here and is asking for you. So Mary gets up suddenly and rushes out to the tomb, and those who are with her sympathizing assume that she's going out there to mourn some more the place where her brother is buried, and so they go with, uh, with her. When Mary meets Jesus, she says the exact same thing to Jesus that Martha had. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then we read in verse number 33, if you'll look at it, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then we come to our text, verse number 35. Jesus wept. At the scene, seeing Jesus weep, there are two responses. The one group say, see how he loved him. He must have really loved this man, that he is weeping because this man has died. But there's another group within the group who say, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And why wasn't he here? He could have prevented this whole thing. Why did Jesus weep? Well, the question, this question, has more than one answer, in my opinion. I think without question, Jesus weeps because he has lost a friend to death. And he weeps out of sympathy for the surviving sisters. And we must say that if he had responded in any other way, it would have been heartless and even strange. Jesus was human. He was not a stoic. And so he weeps as is natural to us at the loss of a loved one. But there is more. If you look at verse number 33, we read of Jesus being deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then in verse number 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. In between these two verses, we find verse number 35, Jesus wept. But it was not only sorrow and sympathy that caused Jesus to weep. There was anger, which I think is reflected in these two verses. The scene before him kindled in him indignation. He was deeply moved in spirit. It actually comes from the same word that is used in Greek, uh, from the same root word, when horses snort. You, You get a sense of someone sort of breathing deeply and really being quite upset. Sort of a groan of indignation that comes from the heart. We read this, by the way, interestingly enough, in Mark chapter 14, about a woman who poured expensive perfume on the head of Jesus. This is Mary. And they were indignant. They rebuked her harshly. They couldn't hardly believe she would waste this. So he is deeply moved in spirit, but he is also troubled. He is troubled, one might say, to the point of physically shaking. And so, lest we think that somehow we have a picture of Jesus sort of dabbing at the corner of his eyes, we have someone who is deeply troubled, deeply moved at the loss of his friend, but also I believe he is angry. He is deeply indignant and troubled. What would cause this? What would prompt this indignation? Why was Jesus angry? What caused these deep emotional disturbances? In a word, it was death. The power of death, the stench of death, 
because Mary said, don't open the tomb because he's already starting to stink. It is the abnormality of death. In the death of Lazarus, we see, in effect, the effects of sin represented in this one event. His death sort of encapsulates in microcosm, this is what sin has done to the world. And Jesus is angry at it. But Jesus has also come to redeem us from this, as we will see in a moment. We have been studying the matter of happiness for the past two Sundays, considering the matter as we have others in light of creation, fall, and redemption. And in creation, we see that it is God's intent, as he created the world, that we who are made in his image should delight and should happiness have happiness and a real sense of contentment. We've seen that God made man in his image and then put him in the Garden of Eden, a garden of delight, a place called paradise for a real reason. And we saw there that this was a place for man to grow and to learn. And as we've been seeing here, a place for him to have happiness, the truly happy life. We looked at, and we've looked at this before, the six components, the spiritual, vocational, social, nutritional, sabbatical, as well as habitational. God put Adam and Eve here that they might find true happiness. And as one a thousand years ago wrote, a brother of ours, that these are the six ingredients, God's recipe for the happy life. Spiritual, vocational, social, nutritional, sabbatical, and habitational. But the sin of Adam and Eve resulted in them being exiled from Eden. And here we are no longer in the realm of creation, but in that of the fall. We are still here in creation, but in terms of theological categories, we are now in the realm of the fall. And in considering happiness within the context of the fall, One of the most devastating effects of sin and the resulting exile is that now we think that we can find happiness apart from the Creator. It is in creation we see that God sets up this place where man can learn happiness and be happy. But now we've been driven away from that and we have become deluded and we think that somehow we can be happy on our own, quite apart from God. More specifically, it is believed that happiness is, resides in love for the things of this world. And the result, as we've seen the last two weeks, is disordered or unhinged love, which leads to disordered or unhinged lives. We looked at the business of unhappiness last Sunday, why people are not or why they cannot be happy. And to be honest, I had intended... I thought we would move on to the matter of happiness and redemption. But I've reconsidered and believe that we should perhaps further consider the matter of happiness and unhappiness within the context of the fall. I'm reminded that Francis Schaeffer used to say that if he was on a train and he knew that it was an hour between stops and he was talking to someone about the gospel, he knew he had 60 minutes to spend with this man to share the gospel with him, that he would spend 45 minutes on the bad news before he got to the good news of the gospel at the end. I think we tend to do it the other way around. We want to talk about the good news. But the good news, I think, becomes less than what it should be because we haven't delved into the matter of the bad news. 
And if we do not see the ugliness of the human pursuit of happiness apart from God, I think we will not appreciate, as we should, the happiness that comes through what Christ has done. I think we will fail to appreciate the fullness of redemption. What I want to do, and I've mentioned David Noggle to you before, I want to retrace some of the work that he has done with the matter of pursuing happiness in light of the seven deadly sins. Love for the seven deadly sins, or what he calls disordered love. That this is what we should be doing, this is what the Creator intended, but since we've been kicked out of Eden, we now think, okay, I can find happiness on my own. The seven deadly sins was initially written for monks and nuns who were in monasteries and nunneries. It was meant to protect them from misbehavior, sort of a short list of these are the things you're supposed to avoid. Well, we are not monks or nuns. We do not live in monasteries or nunneries. But of course, it applies to everyday life. After all, sin is no respecter of persons. The seven sins are pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. It is not an exhaustive list, but as Chaucer said to his readers in the Canterbury Tales, they are the principal sins, and they are the chief sins and the trunk from which all branches or branch all others. Murder is anger's son. Theft is the daughter of greed. Adultery is the offspring of lust. So we may, in fact, conclude that these are seven causes and the other sins are, in fact, their effects. The first three, pride, envy, and anger, are primarily internal in nature. They are seen as cold, as chilly sins that exalt the self and separate us from others. And interestingly enough, on occasion, they can even be seen as respectable that you should take pride in yourself, for example. They have about them an air of respectability. The second four, however, sloth, greed, gluttony, lust, are bodily in nature. They are referred to as the warm sins, if you wish, the sins of passion, of self-indulgence. They have a much more negative reputation. Although each sin is unique in and of itself and its consequences, may be unique. They are leashed together to form a whole, and one could argue that they have pride as their source. But for our purposes in this study, the seven deadly sins are disordered loves. They are misshapen loves, loves that are deviant, if you wish, in nature, and they disorder our lives. Pride, envy, and anger flow from an obsession with the self, Greed, gluttony, and lust flow from an excessive love for other things. And in the end, love for God, who is our chief good, we saw last week, is replaced by love for self and love for things. And the result is sloth, a deficiency in our love for God. I want to look at these sins and consider their pursuit of happiness. Before I go any further, though, a disclaimer When I first became a pastor, within a relatively short period of time, I became aware that much of what I was preaching was not true about me. And I was very 
disturbed by this. And I spoke to a dear friend who was a pastor uh, in Oxnard, and I spoke to him about this. And he said, Damon, our preaching is always beyond our living as pastors. We are not perfect. We're not better than other people. We are sinners too. And if we preach only where we are, then you will suffer, I think, badly. And so we preach beyond where we are. And so as I speak about these sins, if you uh, sense any confidence as I speak, it's not confidence that this isn't true of me. It is confidence that this is what God says and that these things are wrong. So please don't think I'm talking down to you that, boy, you guys, you're, you're a bunch of sinners. We are by nature fallen. And rather than seeking to find happiness in God, we try to find happiness in other things. The first sin is pride. It consists of an immoderate love of self. C.S. Lewis referred to pride as the essential vice, the utmost evil. He said that in relation to other sins, the other sins are mere flea bites by comparison to what pride does in our lives. It is the attitude of people who believe that they are the most important person in the world, even though this belief may be rooted in fear and insecurity. Pride makes people feel they are better than others because of their superior abilities, achievements, or position, so on. It may simply be, as the expression goes, that they are legends in their own minds. But as such, they think they are better than others. And somewhere along the way, they begin to feel superior to even God, the Creator. Lewis called it the most, or the complete anti-God state of mind. If we feel superior to everyone and everything else, if we are consumed by extravagant self-love, if we think the universe revolves around us, our will, and our ways, then acknowledging God, much less bowing down in humility and submission before him, is simply out of the question. Again, quoting Lewis, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. You see, if God is the creator and he knows what will bring us happiness and we reject him in our pride, then, yeah, we're in for a bad time. We cannot know God. Let's be clear that pride is not only anti-God, but it is anti-others. It's against others. Which means that pride is essentially competitive and hostile. It isolates us from others. As we read in Proverbs 13.10, pride only breeds quarrels. Pride is an obnoxious offense. It manifests itself in countless ways. And let me give you a brief list. In insubordination to God, in unteachability, in unrepentance, in excessive self-confidence, in heroic independence, in disobedience to authority figures, in bragging over one's accomplishments, in demeaning others and their successes, in expecting honor, in refusing it to others in hiding one's true self and showing a false face. We could go on and on. But pride is an obnoxious offense. How we despise it in others, how rarely do we detect it in ourselves. But it makes us feel happy. We have a sense that we are better than other people. Let's move on. The second sin is envy, which comes directly out of pride. 
there's a rather cynical book known as the Devil's Dictionary. And it defines happiness as an agreeable, agreeable sensation arising from contemplating the misery of another. I think that this is envy. This is envy that we, we feel a sense of happiness because we see that somebody else is miserable. The Germans have a word for it, schadenfreude, the pleasure we take in the misfortune of others. Nagel puts it this way, on the one hand, envious people feel blessed when others mourn, and on the other hand, they mourn when others are blessed. We feel best when others fail and we succeed. It is worth noting and keeping in our thinking that envy is not merely sort of a horizontal affair. It has a vertical component as well. That is, envy resents what God has given to someone else because he is the giver of all good things. And when somebody else gets something good from God, it creates envy this way, horizontally, but ultimately there's this vertical component in which we are unhappy of what God has done. When we become unhappy when someone is given something that we are not, may fail to recognize that what they've been given has been given to them by God. Envy leads us to devise destructive strategies to get back at others. Let me give you a partial list. We may backbite or detract, grumble, murmur, divide, accuse, malign, resent, hate, lie, gossip, belittle, slander, criticize, annoy, listen and assent to libel. And we could keep going on. The envious may do whatever it takes to ridicule the envied, to pull them down in order to raise ourselves up. King Saul could not stand it when he heard the women of Israel singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Why does David get to do tens of thousands? I'm only thousands. This ultimately led to him trying to kill David on more than one occasion. The third sin is anger. This deadly sin is fueled by the previous two, by pride and envy. The Latin root for the word anger comes from the word meaning to strangle. Now, on the side here, we do know that there is such a thing as righteous anger, to be infuriated by wickedness and, I think, motivated justly to do something about it, to correct that wrong. We read of Jesus himself being angry. For example, at unbelief. In Mark chapter 3, we're told that Jesus went into the Sabbath and there was a man with a withered hand. It was sort of a setup. They wanted to see, would Jesus actually heal this man on the Sabbath? And he asked the religious elite, okay, is it okay to do something good on the Sabbath? We read in verse 5, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Jesus was justifiably angered. And in our text today, we see that Jesus is angry at well, as well at death. Paul wrote in Ephesians, quoting from Psalm 4, In your anger do not sin. We may in fact react fairly and forcefully to wrong situations in the world for the sake of what is right. Having said that, more often than not, our anger is less than righteous. 
Our anger is unrighteous. It's selfishly motivated. It is a vice that combines reckless feelings, thoughts, and actions. If we feel that we have been ignored or forgotten, bullied, slighted, humiliated, disrespected, belittled or wrong, if we feel we've been mistreated in any way, we are filled with anger to varying degrees. And our first thought is to exact vengeance. We plot a course to get even with that person. Quoting Chaucer again, he said, Truly almost all harm that any man does to his neighbor comes from wrath. That which we do against our fellow man often finds its roots in anger. Noggle put it this way in his book, Anger is the wrecking ball of humanity. I think we hear the same thing in the book of Proverbs, verse tw- uh, chapter 29, verse 22. An angry man stirs up dissension, and a hot-tempered one commits many sins. Of the deadly sins, anger would seem to be the most destructive. And the list of its actions, I think, would almost seem endless. It destroys families, friendships, neighborhoods, community groups, churches, cities, nations. Interestingly enough, it can consume the angry one rather than the one against whom one is angry. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke against anger. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be subject to judgment. We are unhappy because of what this person has done. And we think that in some way, by letting loose our anger, we will achieve some feeling of happiness. The fourth sin is sloth. This is a lack of love for God and the things of God. It's not just laziness. I think that that's what, if you look in the dictionary, that's what sloth is defined as. But this is, I think, a distinctly uh, religious or spiritual sin in which God's role in our life is demoted and he is replaced rather enthusiastically with other things. Um, It is the sin of spiritual lethargy and dejection. When we are in this state of being slothful, God or the things of God simply bore us and seem insignificant. Other things don't bore us, though. Other things get our attention. We think that they can make us happy and they excite us. They energize us. But the things of God, we just get bored. In sloth, we are disappointed that we are told that God is our chief good. Perhaps we feel that he has let us down. He cannot be trusted. Why are we going through difficulties? Or we may simply prefer to find the happy life in other things besides God. A lack of love for God can make us spiritually lazy, morally negligent, and intellectually idle. It is, in fact, the sin of omission when we fail to do what we should. It fails to find God as supremely significant. It fails to see God as attractive so that we would pursue him. It allows us to pursue what we truly love in life, what we think will make us happy. It is interesting that sloth is the fourth sin. 
If you do the math, you have three, you have that fourth sin, and then you have three more. It is sort of a hinge uh, that allows us to go from the first three to the second three. When we dethrone God and enthrone ourselves, we can be absorbed in greed, gluttony, and lust. But why would we dethrone God? Because of pride, because of envy, because of anger. Sloth makes the self-centered life possible. The fifth deadly sin is greed. Um, In some of the older lists, they use the word avarice. It consists of an excessive love of money, wealth, and possessions. The desire for more cash in order that we might have more and more things. But it shouldn't be seen in isolation. It isn't simply about things. It has to do with self-esteem, with security, with status and power. I have in my notes in parenthesis, pride and envy, anyone? Uh, That's how we move from pride to greed. We begin to measure our human worth by our net worth. Our bank accounts are our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Sort of a play on one of the verses from the Psalms. We have been told in our culture that greed is good and that there is a new golden rule, which is brutally simple, that those who have the gold make the rules. Living when and where we do, our economic system has its pluses and its minuses. Pluses, it has in fact enhanced the material conditions of life. For all the things people will say against this country, they do in fact want to live here. Our economic system has made what has formerly been called the American dream possible. But it also has its minuses. If you think about it, our economic system as Nagel puts us, makes us look pretty silly as human beings. Benjamin Barber has written a book entitled Consumed, How Markets Corrupt Children, Infantilize Adults, and Swallow Citizens. And he writes that our economic system has produced an ethos of induced childishness. After after all, aren't we told that the only difference between men and boys is the price of their toys? Uh, And by the way, uh, ladies, I I don't think we should just speak of the men at this point. Our economic system has reduced us to being the owner of toys, that which children have. The consumerism that surrounds us and the materialism have caused interesting paradoxes. On the one hand, our prosperous conditions have undermined the work ethic and the virtues that are necessary to generate the wealth that we have. So we have this prosperity, but in the process, we find that people turn away from the idea of hard work in order to get something. On the other hand, our obsession with consumption and material abundance has created a spiritual vacuum. As a result, in our time even, many are reevaluating the basic purposes of their life. Is that why I'm here, to make money and to buy things? Is that what life is about? Is that what will make me happy? And it always, I have mixed feelings when you read of someone who has been very successful in the corporate world, 
who in his 50s or 60s or 70s steps away and says, I'm going to spend more time with my family. And you wonder, have you reached the point where you realize, as Gia read to us from Ecclesiastes, that the person who pursues money will never have enough. It will not make you happy. The sixth deadly sin is gluttony. Speaks of an unreasonable love for food, drink, and intoxicants. Sort of a generic term. The root of this word refers to the throat. It means literally to gulp down or to swallow. It is the habit of eating or drinking too voraciously. That's not a word we hear too often. And we may either be too immoderate or too meticulous in our eating or drinking. That is, the quality and the quantity of our food are at issue here. In either way, either quantity or quality, our stomachs become our gods. And we live in in subservience to the demands of hunger and thirst. There are two basic types of gluttony. I think we think of the first one all the time, and that is the gluttony of of excess. We don't have to look back at uh, the Greeks and the Romans for their festivals. Um, We can think, and I want to be careful here, of the large portions you get when you go out to a restaurant to eat. Um, I was at a seminar recently where someone brought out a plate about this big and said, this is the size of plate you should have. It's now called a kid's plate. But back in the 50s and 60s, this was the regular plate. Over time, it just gets bigger and bigger, and we're given more and more food. A culture of superabundance like our own allows gluttony and its consequences to grow larger. Pun intended. The second form of gluttony is less familiar. It is the gluttony of delicacy, where we think too much and become too concerned about food and drink. Gluttony can affect our physical well-being. It can impede the functioning of our faculties. It can prevent us from fulfilling our callings, the daily duties that we have as God's people. The Bible does not smile on either form of gluttony. Let me read to you several verses. Proverbs 23. Verse number two, put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. It's fairly direct, isn't it? Verse 20, do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat, for drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. And then from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? I think one reason the Bible is so concerned about gluttony is that regardless of the quantity or quality of food and drink that you take in, it will in fact never satisfy your soul. Food and drink are gifts from God. They are meant to nourish us. They are to be enjoyed. There's nothing wrong with good food. Okay? But if we think that they will bring us our ultimate happiness, then we are sadly mistaken. The fact is, we have to eat every day. And after we eat, after a while we get hungry and we must eat again. This is the nature of being human. But if we think it will bring us 
ultimate satisfaction, we are sadly deceived. Frederick Buchner wrote, A glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. He seeks to feed his heart, his soul, or her heart or soul, by feeding their body. The seventh deadly sin is lust. This sin springs from unchecked sexual desire. Few gifts from God have been more thoroughly desecrated than our sexuality. We are deeply susceptible to enjoying divinely ordained sexual pleasures in the wrong way, in illicit ways, for two basic reasons. First of all, simply the tantalizing appeal that such experiences hold. But secondly, I think because of numbness, of boredom, or discontent. If money, food, and other stimulants have failed to satisfy, or if life in a destitute spiritual, social, or cultural environment has failed to fulfill, then perhaps, perhaps sex is our savior. That it can excite, it can save our soul. But it is, in fact, this wonderful gift from God is a poor substitute for God. Whether one uses love to get sex or sex to get love, it is insufficient to fulfill the deep desires, the yearnings of our hearts and our souls. God designed sexuality to point us to the dynamic power of his love for us. God is not only King of kings and Lord of lords, but also the lover of all lovers. And only his love will ultimately satisfy us. The problem is we don't believe this. Deep down, we don't believe this. Many believe that sex is the be-all and end-all. And our society is marked by the consequences of such thinking, both physically and psychologically. In these seven deadly sins, we see humanity's attempts at happiness apart from God. And human history is the record of our failure, the failure of the human race, to reach happiness through these seven sins. We hear this in the familiar song from the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. When I'm driving in my car and a man comes on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination. I can't get no, can't get no satisfaction. Another verse, when I'm watching my TV, a man comes on to tell me how white my shirts can be. Well, he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. I can't get no satisfaction. Or what about Peggy Lee's song? Is that all there is? I don't know if you're familiar with the song, but after verses speaking of disappointment, is that all there is? The last verse, I know what you must be saying to yourselves. If that's the way she feels about it, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh no, not me. I'm in no hurry for that final disappointment. For I know just as well as I'm standing here talking to you, when that final moment comes and I'm breathing my last breath, I'll be saying to myself, Is that all there is? Is that all there is? In humanity's pursuit of happiness apart from God, we have reaped disappointment. We have reaped death. Jesus wept. 
And he was angry at the death of his friend Lazarus. The death of Lazarus demonstrated the effects of life apart from the Creator. This is not what God intended for his creatures, for those made in his image. He intended his people and his world to flourish in wholeness, in peace, and blessing. And instead it was reduced to chaos. The very good creation was reduced, has become undone. Paradise was lost. And one could say Jesus wept because of the vandalism of peace, of shalom, of happiness. But Jesus had a plan all along. Jesus allowed Lazarus to die and his body to remain in the grave beyond any hope of natural recovery. You know, people say, well, he must have just passed out and we thought he was dead, but it's been four days now. Jesus allowed this to happen that he might raise him from the dead. Jesus ordered that they remove the stone from the tomb over the protest of Mary, the sister of Lazarus, about the stench. Jesus prayed to the Father and called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And that's exactly what happened. Lazarus came out, his hand and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. In this incident, which really happened, by the way, it isn't some type of parable or, or fable that we might learn something from. It really happened and we can learn from it. In this incident, Jesus is shown as defeating the powers of sin and death that have stunk up the world, that have imprisoned humanity. In many ways, Lazarus is a type of humanity, dead and in the tomb. And we hear from Jesus three commands. Lazarus, come forth. Take the grave clothes off. Let him come out. And it points to what Jesus came to do in this world, to conquer sin and death. Okay. To conquer sin and death, to release us from its power, and to give us liberty. The raising of Lazarus from the dead was a sign of the restoration that it had in fact begun. That we are now not simply in the fall, we now have transition. We are beginning the process of redemption. Jesus was moved to redemptive action in a broken world. In a world that is racked by sin and death, sinners need forgiveness. And we hear Jesus doing that. Diseases need curing. And we see Jesus healing. Demoniacs, those who are demon-possessed, need deliverance. And he does that. Hunger and thirst need satisfaction. And he feeds the 5,000. Storms need stilling. And he calms the waves. Death needs defeating. And he calls Lazarus from the tomb. Life needs restoring. In part, the restoration of happiness. Frank, could you turn off, I think it's the, the mic on the back of the piano. It's on this side over here. Yeah, I think you got it. Thank you. It is worth noting that Jesus' lifestyle 
for which, by the way, he was falsely accused of being a glutton, of being a drunkard, of having bad company. That, in fact, this fits within God's purpose of redemption, that Jesus has come into the world to redeem us. There was happiness in creation. In the fall, we seek it on our own. But Jesus has come into the world to give us true happiness. This is the redemption part of the equation. If we seek happiness on our own, apart from God, we will only reap that which stinks, like Lazarus in the grave. But if we look to Jesus, we are told that we will be given true happiness. And he promises in the first sermon we have recorded, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The word that is translated blessed or blessed uh, actually comes from the word meaning happy. I think we get a bit nervous about that because we would rather sound spiritual and be blessed as opposed to being frivolous and being happy. Uh, But happiness is what Jesus came to restore. But it doesn't make sense, does it? Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And it goes on and on. This leads us to something we've been considering the past few weeks, the connection between goodness and happiness. Yeah, it's what we suspected all along. You can either be good or you can be happy. Because the way that he defines happiness is mourning and being poor in spirit. It doesn't make sense. Well, the Lord willing, we will look at happiness in redemption and see that happiness and goodness, in fact, do come together. They are meant to be together. We're just so infected by the ugliness and the death and the stench of this world pursuing happiness that we don't get it. The Lord willing, next week, we will look at this again. Let's pray together. Father, after hearing all these things, we freely confess that we are sinners. We have pursued a life apart from you. We are thankful that by your grace, through your Son, you have purchased us, you have redeemed us. We are your people, and yet, in so many ways, we still think the old way. We still fall back on our default position, thinking that we can, by pride or envy, greed, lust, that we can make ourselves happy. I thank you that you have not abandoned us, just as Jesus did not abandon Lazarus to the tomb. You have, by your grace, called us out of death into life, into a life of true happiness, if we would but listen and put into practice the things you've told us. May we think on the things that we've heard this morning, this day, through the coming week, By your grace, bring us back together as we look at what Jesus has brought us in redemption. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. Again, we remember those that aren't with us.
because of illness. We ask that you would touch them. For those that are traveling, will be traveling, you would keep them safe. In a particular way, we remember Jasmine as her time of delivery is near. Watch over her and her baby. Bring that life safely into this world. Now we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen. Would you stand, please? We'll sing the doxology together.